Thank you. Uh, for those of you that haven't met Alex, Alex is, uh, he oversees youth for us, middle school and high school, and we've got some things going on for that. And so, uh, again, if you'd like more information on that, you can check in on our app and in the prayer request area. By the way, we'd love to have your prayer request and pray for you. Uh, but you can also add comments down there and say, hey, I'd like to know more about youth or community groups or whatever. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Exodus. We're really going to work our way through Exodus 21 and 22. Uh, but I'm going to ask you a favor, and what I'd like you to do is even, I know, I know you're at home, and I know I can't possibly enforce this, but I'm going to ask, would you please stand with me? And when we gather together in the church, we often stand at the beginning of service, and, the, and, and we read a passage of scripture that is relevant for the day. And so we do that not in some religious reason or something where we think it's a rule, but rather that we stand up just to give authority to God's word. We just recognize that it's not me or, or you that is the ultimate authority of our faith, but it, it, it is God, and, and God has revealed himself through the scriptures to us. So the Bible is the authority that we live to, that we surrender to, that challenges us, encourages us, rebukes us, loves us, and ultimately points us to Jesus. And so this morning, I'm going to read out of Exodus 20. It's the passage right before we're going to study today, and it's what we closed with last week, and it's the Ten Commandments, very popular, very you know, famous, obviously, words, right? Exodus 20, starting in verse 1, says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is, on, is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the Lord of the name your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God, that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments that God has given us. Let us pray. God, as we stand and we pray and we read your word, we do this to give authority to you, to recognize, to give honor and glory to you. And we do so knowing, God, you are a good God. You have taught us the way to live. You've not given us rules to keep that we might please you. You already love us. In Christ, you are already fully pleased with any, any who follow Jesus. And so we do this to learn how to love you well and how to love others well. And so God, teach us today. Jesus, will you speak to us today? We know, Jesus, you are the living God. You you are God become flesh. You lived, you died, you rose again. You have ascended back to heaven. You are alive. And you speak to us. We are your church. So Jesus, please teach us today. Let me fade into the background. And would you speak? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you're 
Uh, if you're with us, I appreciate you standing. And if you did that, uh, I want to give you a main idea for today. And again, all these notes are in your app. The song lyrics are in the app. Everything's in the app for your convenience while live streaming or here in person. Uh, and the main idea today is laws, how we love others. To fully understand the Ten Commandments and the laws that clarify them, we must look through the lens of love. Christians are called to love God and to love others. Laws teach us how to faithfully love both God and others. When we have these laws given to us by God, the Ten Commandments or the laws that we look at today that kind of follow them, giving us clarity around the Ten Commandments, what it is is the first four obviously are about loving God, and then the last six commandments are about us loving one another. Don't steal from people. Don't covet what they have. Be pleased with what you have, right? Don't murder. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't take God's name in ways that are common and just, you know, useless, but only in holy ways. Work six days and then take a day to worship God. Be filled by God. Spend that day with your family. Spend that day with your church, right? So as we do that, we're, we're really saying, okay, how do I love God? How do I love one another? And these laws give us guidance. They teach us what it looks like in a fallen, broken, sinful world. They teach us what it looks like to be loving. So Exodus 21 is where we are today. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. So Moses, here's the rules. And so if you're just joining us today, here's the background. Here's where we are. Israel's been delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're in the wilderness at the bottom of a place called Mount Sinai. And, and Moses has gone up the mountain to meet with God. And God descends on the mountain with fire and um, just this incredibly, really kind of frightening vision. And, and Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God as God has requested. And we said this last week, sometimes being a leader is incredibly frightening, but you also need to have some amazing experiences with God, right? If you're, if you're brave enough, and if, and if God calls you up the mountain, you get to have these encounters. But then there's a responsibility out of it, and that's when we pick up the story today. Now, the responsibility to Moses is go back down the mountain and teach the people teach them. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. He shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he will go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. So we get the Ten Commandments, and we're pretty used to them we get don't murder, we get take a Sabbath, even if a lot of people ignore that, right? We, we, we know those, but then as God begins to clarify the Ten Commandments, it gets a little murky. In fact, it really begins to kind of get weird right here. This, this verse, this passage really breaks our American mind. It really takes our setting and, and it really throws a wrench in it. And so um, what we need to understand is this isn't written to a context like we think of. When we think of slavery, we think of the things that happened in America, in Europe, the, the people, Africans, took other Africans as slaves and then sold them to Europeans. And, then, you know, and we, we have that kind of slavery. It was, that's, uh, as we look at that, that's our only real paradigm for slavery. So when we hear about slavery in Egypt, when Israel's enslaved in Egypt, well, that's what we think of. And it was similar but different. And then this is very different. And so, this is, I want you to think of people that become indebted. Slavery here is very different than the images we have in our minds. 
I want you to think that, that poverty has always been a human condition, right? Jesus says something to the effect of the poor will always be among us, right? Not that they're not important. In fact, as Christians, we are to care for the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the poor, the weak, the needy, right? The widows and the orphans, or today, I think the single parent and the foster kid. We are to care for the people that are in need. And so it's not that we don't care. It's, it's not that, that God is, doesn't care. It's just God is saying poverty is a reality. And so what happens in this culture is people would borrow from somebody, and when they would borrow from them, and then they had this, for, maybe it was to eat, or maybe it was to buy a business or do something, right? Maybe they were doing something, and then some tragedy occurred, or something happened, or even just poor management, and they didn't have the money, and they had no way of paying back. What would happen is they would do kind of an indebtedness. They would become a servant to the lender and the borrower, right? And think of the Proverbs who says, the borrower becomes slave to the lender, right? Well, in our day, we think of that metaphorically. We think of credit card debt or whatever. But literally, the borrower would become the slave of the lender. And so they would do that. And what God is saying here is that is a good way to pay off a debt. But there's rules to this. And so when we hear slave, we think of someone who gets no pay, someone who is mistreated, someone who is beaten, someone who is this, and we think of ethnic groups or, or whatever. This is two Jewish people that are equals and peers, and one of them finds himself in a situation where they are indebted to the other. And the other, rather than lose everything, there was a way. And, and this way would not only provide a way through the debt, but it gave a way of dignity to work the debt off. But God said, here's what, no matter how big the amount, six years is your maximum. The seventh year, they go free. And if you give them a wife and they have kids, the wife and the kids go with them. If they come in single, it's fine that they go out single. If they come in married, the wife goes with them. But there was a way of being loving. And, and today, the idea is seeing all these rules or all these laws and commandments through the lens of love. How do you care for someone when someone has lost? If they lovingly loan money out at no interest or whatever, if they did that lovingly and then their money's gone, it's unfair that they take all the penalty. But then over here, maybe something catastrophic happened and maybe, maybe the borrower wasn't just a, you know, just a bad person and didn't just throw it away. How do we lovingly kind of remove that debt, care for both people? And so God would allow this. You could work indebted to another person. Verse 5, it says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and they shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Listen, if they love their master, right, my wife and my children, if, if, if a man is indebted to another man, and the man takes him and allows him to work for him, in, be enslaved in a different way, like be his servant to work off this debt, then when this man would go free, he may have nothing to go home to. But if he loves his master and he loves his wife and he loves his kids, maybe this job is a good job for him. You know, sometimes a bad job is better than going hungry, whether it's cleaning toilets or digging ditches or doing something hard or doing something you don't like. Sometimes that's better than going hungry and if it's a good master and this person is willing, right, then he can choose on the year of freedom not to go free. And they will go together, these two men, they will go to the house of the Lord. And literally he would pierce his ear, he would like kind of, with an awl, he would pierce his ear. And this, this, this person would wear an earring in the sign of being a bondservant. 
for life to this man. And so there was this way that would give dignity and give care and give love to both sides. So here's a note for you. This is in your app. The lens of love, and that's we're going to say that over and over again today. The lens of love, poverty, dignity, and opportunity. Looking upon the destitute in our midst in love calls us toward providing dignity and opportunity for them. Israel's opportunity to pay a debt owed by servitude for a fair amount of time was a way of loving their neighbor. It was not human trafficking, right? God is putting boundaries on this. Like, you don't get to just enslave people. And as we see some different rules, like, you don't just get to beat these people and not pay these people. Like, there's a purpose here. And it should be so good that some who may not have something else to do or live for, another vocation, career, or opportunity, that some would just choose to stay this way. It doesn't even have to stay, but you have to let them go. This time is a maximum. You, you've got to let them go. And so there was a way to have two people, two parties, who would come together when one of them was injured in a, in a process, a debt or something. The other could repay, but in a lovingly way. The one who loaned could love that person. If he loaned in love, then the repayment would come in love, right? And if that gets broken down, that both people should be treated fairly. Verse 7, it says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, and I know this gets weird, right? When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed and be bought back out. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, again, this kind of breaks our American minds, right? And so you've got to look at this, and really, it's the ninth word in verse 7, right? This, this slave, that's the word that really breaks it for us. But this is about marriage. And a lot of times in this culture, again, not American culture, but a lot of times in this culture, in arranged marriage setting, right, you would arrange marriages sometimes for political interest or sometimes for business interest or sometimes you had a debt. If a man had a debt, he could give his daughter to someone else in marriage and really forego the price they would normally give, a, a gift. They would always buy the bride, right? They would always give a gift, a dowry is what we call it today, right? They would give that away. And so sacrificing that dowry, he would bring his daughter into this equation. And, and then that man was required to treat her as a wife or treat her well. Treat her. And then if, he, if the man that doing the deal that received the, the girl gave him to his son, then he was to treat her as a daughter. And so the word slave, remember, our American minds put things to this, right? Not things from this culture, but things from our history and our culture, things that we have heard. And so this is a different setting. So God here is not saying slavery like we think of is okay. He's not saying that. But there was a situation of servitude that was allowable. And sometimes in an arranged marriage culture, that was a part of a deal. And so he's teaching them how to do this. Verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place in which he must flee. So there's a distinction here made. Now, we just heard the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, right? And so God is defining, like we have in our law, the difference between murder 
and in this case, maybe manslaughter. And so if the distinction is one waits, premeditates, goes, and murders, that's a death penalty. God says, if you murder, that's a death penalty. And just imagine the setting of a murder, right? One person takes somebody from another family. Yes, he kills them, but the family left behind all suffer a great loss, right? And so really, his death doesn't pay that loss, but there's a sense of justice. See, love has both justice and righteousness in it, as well as mercy and grace. And so there's a, there's a justice aspect here. And so a life for a life, right? That would be taken. But if this person was, uh, you know, kind of driving cattle and, 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 and ran somebody over or something, right? I, that's probably not a great example. Modern day example would be like a car accident. And if you're driving a car and, and you know, you kind of look away, you change the radio station, you do something and you, you look back up and the light is red. I know most of you don't listen to radio. So you change your iPhone, whatever, right? And so you go through this intersection and you don't realize it just turned red and somebody enters the intersection and you hit them and kill them, but it's an accident, a traffic accident, you might be held liable for a thing called manslaughter. And so the difference was, did you want to kill somebody or not want to kill somebody? Another thing that's created here is actually the sanctuary city. And again, we hear sanctuary cities and we think of San Francisco, we think of LA, we think of things like that, but it's not the same. And in fact, it is entirely different. There would be these small sections when they entered into the land, and we'll see that later, but when they enter into the land, there are going to be certain places set aside where people could go. And, and, and the idea was if you accidentally killed somebody or if you did something that was not planned or was not intentional, you didn't mean to be evil, you would be banished from your family, from your home. You would suffer the loss of what you had known in your home, and you would go live in this place called a sanctuary city where the family of the person killed could not take out their vengeance on you. They could not come and get you. So it was this place, a sanctuary city. Today, we have a very different setting. It, it, really, today, the modern use of that is, really, rules don't apply. And, and it's not that. This was a part of the penalty. Right here... There's, it's not a penalty to live in a, city, in a sanctuary city, and you can leave the city. This is, like, this is your penalty, right? You're going to lose something just like they lost something because you caused it. Even though you didn't mean to cause it, you're still responsible. And so you're banished to this sanctuary city. Verse 14, it says, But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So premeditated murder is clearly punishable by death. So here's a note for you. The lens of love, death penalty, and sanctuary. There's a penalty due for breaking the law, but there is also provision for mercy. God provides justice through both penalty and sanctuary depending on the situation. Love requires a penalty paid for, but within boundaries. Love requires that we look from both sides. We have to, if we have that car accident, if we're driving a car and we mistakenly run a red light or do something and, and we kill someone, we have to look with love from both sides, all angles, right? We have to look from the family who suffered loss, right? But we also, then we, we understand we caused that loss and it's fair that we suffer some loss. Now, if we do it on purpose or we drive drunk or we do something that is like we chose to do this, then of course, then your life could be taken from this and, and may deserve to be taken from this. But when it was a different set of circumstances, God says there's a different way to penalize somebody 
And then his own family's going to suffer some loss because he's banished out here, and maybe his wife and kids go, and maybe they endure that with him, but he's going to lose. But then this family that suffered loss knows that God's justice is also there. It's grace and mercy, and yet justice and righteousness all combined. Verse 15, it says this, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. What? You hear that, teenagers? All right. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Listen to that. Imagine that in our culture right now. Uh, just imagine. But again, we're back in the Ten Commandments. Honor, honor your father and mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the first one about loving other people, right? First four, go to God. How do we love God faithfully, truly, the way God created us to? And then starting in commandment number five, love I mean, excuse me, honor your father and mother. Like there's a, a place for this. Like they're above you, you give them honor. Even as adults, we are called to honor our parents. Even those of us that grow up in weird circumstances where all the relationships aren't always intact and aren't always good, the job is honor them, right? Honor your father and mother. It says, whoever strikes his father and mother should be put to death. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found a possession of him shall be put to death, sex trafficking or slavery or other things where you just steal somebody, which is our, kind of our history of slavery. They were stolen from places and then bought and sold. They should be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. I'm just saying, if we were gathering in person right now, this is a moment where we would just, we'd probably take an offering because the parents would be very generous in this moment as we said this, Right? Parents, you should memorize yourselves some Old Testament, right? You, when your kids talk back to you, you're like, hey, check this out, man. Exodus 21, 17, whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. But I'm feeling grace-filled and merciful today. So you guys are going to live, but watch it. I'm going to break out my Exodus again if you do it, right? Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, in other words, he is severely injured. Then if the man rises again, if this man lives, right, and walks outdoors with his staff, if he's able to walk in life again, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and he shall have him thoroughly healed. So here's the setting. If you get in a fight with a man, or you attack a man, you hit him with your fish, you hit him with a rock, you hit him with a baseball bat, whatever it looks like, and you injure the man, and you bedridden this man. Like, okay, for us, emergency room, hospital, they're laid up for a season, Right? but they live, you won't die for murder. You won't be put to death for murder. But if they live and they can walk again, if they are able to function in life after a season of time, you're okay, except you have to pay for all their lost time, their lost work, their injuries, their medicine, their doctor, their hospital bills, whatever it is. You caused it, you have to pay for it. But you're not executed as a murderer, if they live and they can walk and they can function again, you pay for what you caused. Again, look from both sides. We have to look at. And I love that God doesn't give us circumstances like, so if this starts the fight, then this, right? It's just, if this happens, you're responsible. You let your anger get a hold of you and you do this. I don't care who's right or wrong. You cause this. Here's your penalty, right? Because mercy and grace and love and justice and righteousness, they all cut two ways. And through these laws, what we're learning is how does love play itself out in our relationship to God and our relationship to one another? 
See, it's really hard to say, God, I love you, I love you. Oh, God, I want to follow you. And then we cheat on God and we worship other things like money and sex and time and business and whatever. Because then we're being unfaithful toward God. It's like if I tell my wife I love her, but I'm unfaithful to her, I don't really love her. I clearly don't love her well, right? And so loving God requires that we love him in a specific way. And then loving people like our wives, like our children, like our neighbors, that requires loving in a certain way. And so God gives us a framework to understand because we're sinful, we're selfish, we're corrupt, we, we live in a broken world. What does this look like? What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love your neighbor? So what is so loving about this is that it loves both the injured man and the one who causes the injury. Both are loved in this setting. Both are treated fairly. There's a problem here. It's caused, it's penalized, but it's not over-penalized. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, again, American mindset just gets all tweaked to this, right? This is really hard to kind of understand in our framework. So if a man strikes another man, right, and it happens to be around this issue of indebtedness, and this man is working for this man because of his debt, if this man dies, the man loses his, his repayment, right? But also this person has a family. They lose a family member. And so and as everybody starts to lose here, we're asking, okay, what is the most loving and just thing to do? And so again, it's if this happens <clears throat> and he kills him, he should be avenged, like he should be killed for doing it. He should be avenged by the family, avenged by God. But if he lives, if he survives, then this is what happens, right? And, and it says, but if he survives, he's not to be avenged. For the slave is his money. Like if that happens and he causes time to be lost, the time was actually his repayment. And so again, you have to un you have to unkind of connect, disconnect from our culture and realize we're in another culture. This stuff wouldn't work here today, and we also hear different things when we read it because we bring context to it that doesn't belong. And so what God is saying, and, and, and the value we should take away is not that if we owe money, we should become a slave to somebody else. That's not what we're learning here. What we're learning is that our rules and our laws and our life need to be lived through the lens of all people being loved in a circumstance, right? How does God show love to us? How does culture show love to us? In other words, not culture so much as maybe government or people, humans, you and I, as we relate to one another, how are all sides being loving at all times? And then, when extreme circumstances, a life for a life. But on the road up there, there's a lot of other things, and we're considering both sides, not just one. Both people here lose and, and win, but both people are also kind of made whole, if you will. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one that hit her shall surely be fined. There's a penalty if you cause an early delivery, but the, but the delivery is good. The, the child is healthy. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. This is entirely about the life of the fetus, right? The life of the child, the baby, the human being carried by this woman. 
right? And the penalty all the way up to injury and death, right? Death, if you cause death, you get death. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a stripe for a stripe, a burn for a burn. You, you, you receive what you gave. And here's what's amazing. Could, could God be any more clear about this, right? This is the longest description of a penalty so far, and it comes to the most vulnerable, vulnerable human being being hurt, an unborn child. You see, the church, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, all, the church views that, that life begins upon conception that that little fetus isn't tissue, it's a human being, it's a life that God has created, and, and all life is miraculous. And that the most vulnerable of life, right, the innocent child in a womb, or a child, a kid, a foster child, an orphan, a widow, a, a single parent, a, the weak, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor, that they should be cared for more than the strong and the wealthy, because the strong and the wealthy have their strength, have their wealth, that culture tends to care for them already. And so this idea is that all people are created in the image of God, and, and all people have a dignity. And so the innocent are viewed as, as, as in this case, this, this is an innocent life. This child has not even taken a breath yet. It has not had an opportunity to even offend anyone. So if that life is taken, it is a life that must be paid. Here's a note for you. The, the lens of love, death penalty, and abortion God prescribes death if a miscarriage is caused because a life is taken. The death penalty gives justice to the guilty. Abortion takes an innocent life. Not considering the life of the innocent means not loving the most vulnerable among us. Right? When we have a death penalty, when someone commits a murder and their life is taken, even today, it's a guilty life. They're paying life for life. Right? And, and, but in this case, this is an innocent life. A child, even before a heartbeat, but as soon as it's conceived, when that DNA exists, it's human, it's a life. God has knit this together inside of a woman. It's a life. And if you cause that to die, you have taken a life. And the penalty is your life. Now, again, this breaks our American brain, and you can just hear people, well, I have, I have a right to choose. You can hear women just chanting over and over again as we're, as we're wrestling through this in our culture. If this Supreme Court justice gets approved, or if this, or if that, what about Roe v. Wade? And, and all we hear is women saying, I have a right. I have a right to choose. I have a right to my own body. And I wanted to say, you have a right. You have a right to your own body. You have a right to your own medical care. But so does that baby. And you have a right to who you sleep with and don't sleep with. And you have a right to how you take precaution and, and prevention for, you know, for, for pregnancy. You have all those rights. But that child has a right, and you don't have the right to take that life. And I don't think you should be put to death. I think our culture has just lost sight of the weak and the innocent. And the same people that champion the right to choose also fight against the death penalty for the guilty. I think sometimes we just have everything upside down here and we're missing the care for the vulnerable. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. If someone owes you money and you go and knock out their tooth, you don't get to collect the money again. That's what God is saying. Disfigurement equals debt paid. 
And God is not condoning the violence. God is saying, listen, if they're working for you to pay off a debt and you harm them, the debt's canceled. They go free. He's not condoning violence. He's saying you don't get to harm them and collect the debt. You don't get to be that loan shark that comes and breaks a kneecap and you still own the money plus the vig, right? You don't get to do that. But you've already gotten your payment. And so it's a penalty to the person who has done wrong and not to the person who hasn't. Verse 28, when an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox will be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox will not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned and has not kept it in, and if it kills a man or a woman, the ox will be stoned. Not the smoking kind, the death kind, right? And so it should be put to death. It says, verse 30, and if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall, be, he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, a male or a female, the owner shall give their master 30 seconds of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Right? This ox will die. And now I want you to imagine just modern day setting. Just imagine a dog bites, right? Your dog bites someone or someone's dog bites you. And, there, and there's this there's this understanding that it's not always just the person, the owner's fault, but there are times when the owner knows better and the owner knows this dog is, is not friendly and doesn't protect others. And then if that's the case, then the owner is liable, right? And, and clearly this is, uh, you know, all this existed before uh, slip and fall lawsuits in California, things like this. But this was, how do we love both sides? How do we love the dog owner the ox owner, who didn't mean for this to happen and couldn't have known it was going to happen. But also, how do, we, how do we love the injured party? And then only penalty, honestly, just an only additional penalty is if this guy wasn't loving his neighbor by preventing something he knew was wild, he knew was vicious, a dog he knew would bite, an ox he knew would gore. So this is all about loving our neighbor. This isn't about not loving just ourselves, but loving our neighbor, because to keep something like an ox that would gore people was selfish. You didn't want to suffer loss, so it's selfish, loving self. It's not loving your neighbor. And so God is reminding us, listen, sometimes things happen. Here's what we'll do to kind of settle the debt when someone dies. We'll, we'll kill the ox, and we'll, we'll sell it, and we'll pay for the problem, and we'll do what we can to make everybody whole. And if it's not their fault, it's not their fault, but if they know better, then they suffer the penalty because they know better. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his, right? Again, you can't imagine this. In, in California, we have just attorneys devoted to lawsuits of injury and harm and, and personal loss. And this is before all that, but our circumstance is so much more broken, so much more selfish. And this, we have to un, just kind of disconnect from that setting and say, okay, sometimes stuff happens and, and no one wanted it to happen. And when that happens, there's still an injury. How do we make everybody as whole as possible? How do we treat everybody in this circumstance as fairly as possible, as lovingly as possible? Verse 35 says, when one man's ox butts another ox so that it dies, and they shall sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead beast, they shall also share. They'll take the meat from it, right? Or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to go on the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. 
right? More of the same, equity on both sides. So here's a note for you, lens of love. Equity is two-sided, right? God provides justice for the innocent in the hardest situations of life, as well as equitable penalty for the guilty. People owed a debt or who suffer a loss provided for justly, are provided for justly. The offenders pay fair penalties as well. Justice is two-sided. Equity is two-sided here. So I'm not going to read through all of Exodus 22. It's more of the same. It's more of what happens with your animal, your farm, your people, this, right? But I want to skip down to verse 16. It says this, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And if her father utterly refuses her to give to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Again, this is so far outside our world, in our context. People don't buy brides. And in fact, today, the father of the bride normally pays for the wedding. And so um, this is different. It's not arranged marriages. We don't live in that culture. If we live somewhere else that did that, this would be a different conversation. So instead, I just want to have you consider, what if we just obeyed one rule God gave us, right? In the Ten Commandments, God talks about not committing adultery, but it's much larger than that. You see, sexual sin in general is anything that is not one man, one woman, consensually sleeping together inside the boundaries of marriage. That God created sex for that, that it should be enjoyed by a lifetime, but not until marriage, not outside of marriage, not in addition to marriage, and, and not, un, not consensually. Imagine we obeyed that one thing. So imagine if we chose one rule that God gave us on how to love one another. Remember, because that's what this is about. It's about loving people, loving our neighbor, loving people we don't even know about. And imagine we just obeyed this one rule. Just imagine all the, all the problems, all the things that go away. I, I jotted down a quick note or a quick list earlier. No more sexually transmitted diseases, right? Children would be raised by two parents. Single parents would only, in the case of death, if they didn't remarry, right? All this, if no sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage, right? None of this, not, none of these things happen. If we just did this one thing, no more crisis pregnancies and hopefully no more abortion, right? No more distrust in marriage when people travel from work thinking, listen, you couldn't keep it together when we were dating and we, didn't, we weren't supposed to sleep together. Now, how can I trust you out of town, right? There'd be no more image issues in, in women thinking their husband is comparing them to someone else, right? There'd be no more pornography, no more prostitution. I could go on for hours. No more rape, no more incest. I mean, the list goes on and goes on and goes on, all by obeying one thing God gave us. Hey, listen, grow up purely. Young men, grow up. Don't sleep around. Young women, grow up. Save yourself for marriage. Men, save yourself for marriage. And then come together as a married couple. And then for the first time ever, as you go on your honeymoon, you get to experience sexual intercourse. You get to experience this, this physical love between a man and a woman. Then you get that for a lifetime. Like, that's your journey. Go enjoy that for a lifetime. One thing, if we obeyed this one thing, so many broken pieces of our life go away. Things we never count on. Things we never plan for. So I'm going to put it like this, and here's a note for you in your app. The lens of love. Sexual purity prevents future injury. The rules about sexual purity in marriage are about loving people we can't even see today. The kids accidentally produce, the damage to our souls we don't realize today, and the future spouses we injure by selfishness now. The list could go on and on and on. If we obeyed that one thing, there's so much brokenness in the world that would go away. 
not to mention if we obeyed the other nine commandments. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal should be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Just imagine if we put to death the most perverse around those who lead us away from God. These three verses here are about false worship, just so you know. Just imagine how our culture might be better. Again, disconnect your 2020 American brain and just say, listen, if we didn't allow for anything else to draw us off track for God, just imagine if we didn't allow that in our culture, not just executing people, just imagine we didn't allow for that, how much better our culture would be, how much better, stronger, healthier the church would be. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So this is about immigration before immigration was a political talking, a talking point, right? This is about care for people who have no home, no family, no hope, no future. This is about people as they wander through wherever land you live in. And you have to understand that the moment when this is given, as God says this, imagine the people of Exodus right now with no home. And so we'll put this on, the, on your app for you. The lens of love, the immigrant and the stranger. The Bible's filled with about 100 commands about treating the immigrant with love. Consider this for your political discourse. As this is told to Moses on Mount Sinai, he and God's people are all immigrants with no home of their own. Imagine as they're immigrants, they're told in the future, when you set up shop and you build a wall and you do your thing, just remember you're an immigrant too. And I'm going to say 99% of you hearing these words today, reading that note we just put on the screen, I'm going to say this, you came from somewhere else too. I remember my grandfather immigrated here from England and my, my other family came from England a long time before that. My grandfather himself came here. He served in the military and in the Great War, and he, he became a citizen. That was a part of that. Today, we don't see immigration today as the same as we did because it's become a political point. And that's why no good political party for the Christian. We, are, we should be a people without a party. We should not feel comfortable in the Democratic Party or the, comfortable in the Republican Party because over here, abortion is championed, and over here, immigrants are mistreated if we're fair or not welcomed. Like we have no home because we're really a part of the tribe of Jesus. No home is good for us. Yes, we're called to vote. Yes, we should vote. But let's be honest. We're voting between two people neither one, none of us want. That's what we're doing. And if you're championing one side or the other, just remember as a Christian, neither party fits us very well. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, Listen to this. I will surely hear their, this is God speaking. I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Do you hear what God says? God sounds like an angry mob boss. You do this to me. I'm going to kill you. Your wife is going to go to sleep at night alone. Your kids are going to grow up with no father. I'm going to take it out on you if you injure these little innocent ones. If I hear their cry, it's on. I'm coming for you. That's what God says. Remember that line in The Untouchables where the, the older cop, he says, he says, you put one of ours in the hospital, we put one of yours in the morgue. God is saying, you injure one of these little ones, my wrath will be on you. Verse 25, he says, if you lend money to any people 
with you who is poor, and you shall not be like the moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for it, that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, I am compassionate. He's saying this, I will be compassionate to him, but not to you. This is a call to the wealthy to care for the poor in ways that are fair, not to loan money with interest, but just like, hey, I'm going to help you out. You pay me back, right? And then there was provisions for if they don't. But it wasn't about charging. It wasn't about earning off poor people. It wasn't about making money like the credit card companies who make money off of people who don't have the money to give to them. This is justice from the wealthy to the poor. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Listen, and I'm going to read this verse again. You shall not revile God, we all get that part, nor curse a ruler of your people. Right? We get part one, you shall not revile God. Part two of the sentence says, or curse a ruler of your people. So anti-Newsom people, anti-Governor Newsom people, I hear you, stop saying bad things about him. Anti-Trump people, same thing. Time to just, whoop, just zip it. Like, we just, time to stop talking poorly about our leaders, our government. Fix it. Pray. Vote. Change. Do things. But stop speaking poorly about everybody else. Remember our series through Isaiah. We just talked about over and over again how much the church looks like the rest of the world, how much the church speaks on social media just like the rest of the world that they talk trash, they can put down, they call names, right? Sleepy Joe, whatever, all these things, right? Just stop, stop. Don't revile God, and don't say bad things about your governors, your leaders, your people. So how do we do this? How do we look at all this and say, okay, there's a bunch of rules, but, but really, I, how, do we, how do we get there? What do we do? And I just want to tell you this. This is everything. This has all been very applicational. Do this, don't do this. How, how do we, we see this through the lens of love? But hear this. This is about Jesus, right? God created you to be something, a worshiper of him. You were made to give glory, to give glory to God. But because of sin, all of us have become people who do not glorify God, people who do not bring God glory. In fact, people who are selfish and only think of ourselves and only go the direction we want to go, which is running away from God. But God, in his grace and mercy, didn't want to see us all run ourselves straight into hell. So God became flesh. Jesus became human for us. And then Jesus lived the life we were called to live, and then he died for us, a life for life. God died for you, for me. He was buried in the ground to cover our sin. He was resurrected from the grave on the third day to give us new life. When we talk about how to live this way, what we say is in Christ, who has ascended to heaven and given us his spirit, we are empowered to live in ways that are loving, loving God, loving one another. And the guidelines for us as a community of faith, as people who have devoted our lives to following Jesus, the guidelines are love God love your neighbor. And how do we do that out? Well, God gives us laws to lead us and to guide us. You see, the gospel is this. If you are willing to submit yourself and ask Jesus to be your savior and forgive your sin, what you're doing is you're trading your life, which deserves to be dead, my life, which deserves to be killed. We're trading that for Christ's death. It's a life for a life because that's how God loves us And that's how we can love him. He sacrificed for us.
for us. And there is no justice here. It is a complete injustice. We don't deserve this. It is all mercy, all grace for us. But God has satisfied that penalty as Jesus gave his life. You see, to be a Christian is all about loving God. Jesus says, listen, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He doesn't say, if you love me, go and obey my commands. He says, if you love me, you will. You will obey my commands. I always say this, if I love my wife, then there are things I won't do because I love her. I won't harm her. It's every time I become selfish that I do damage here. But because I love her, there are things I will never do to hurt her. And the more I love her, the better husband I become. And the the more I love Jesus, the more I love God, the more I follow after him, the more my life looks like God has called us to live. I'm going to close with this verse, Romans 3, verses 23 to 25, and, and then also 6, 23. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, a penalty to make God favorably inclined to us. That's what propitiation means. To be received by faith. That's all we do. We receive it by faith. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've all done so much that we should die for our sins and be separated from God forever. But God in his love, in his justice, in his mercy, in his grace, God has provided an alternative in Christ. And if you're here today, and and Jesus is not your Savior, Jesus is not your God, the one you wake up to and begin your day with and end your day with, and the one that leads you throughout all of your days, then you have that opportunity today. And I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to close our service. The whole message was very applicational, and I just want to close with the greatest application that we have together today, and that's to respond to the gospel. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather today, some of us have been followers of yours for decades and love you and have given our lives to following you, but none of us do this well. None of us do this perfectly. We're all flawed. We all sin. And so for us, starting with us, the Christians, the church, those of us who know better, I start with us and I just just confess, God, we fall short. We look more American than we do Christ-like today. That's our greatest sins. We act like the world around us. We don't act just like your people. We don't love others more than we love ourselves. We don't love you more than we love ourselves. And yes, you are transforming us and drawing us nearer and nearer, but we're all flawed inside. And so I confess on behalf of Christians and on behalf of the church, God, we're flawed. Will you cover our sin today? We thank you that you traded a death, the death of your son, that Jesus, you gave your life for us willingly. For those that are out there that are brand new believers, let them hear this, that we don't just now go obey rules. If they're just beginning to hear the the news of the gospel and they've just begun to respond to it, let them hear these laws and these rules as, as guidelines, not as things we do to please you because God in Christ, you are already pleased with us. You already love us fully. There is nothing more we can do to make you love us any more than you already do. We can't earn your salvation. We receive it by faith. And by grace. For those that are watching today that are live streaming with us or here with us in, in person and are not followers of Jesus, I pray that today you would soften their hearts, that they would, that they would desire to follow you, and I just ask that they would reach out. Let them reach out to the person that brought them to church or the person they're live streaming with, or, or, or they can reach out to me, God, and just let them ask, how, how do I begin to follow Jesus? And let Generations Church be that place where we can walk with them and teach them 
about the amazing love and grace and mercy that is found in you. Let us love you and love others just as you did, Jesus. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.